0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: So, tonight's week five, and I thought it would be good for us to discuss in a large group context. I'll share some thoughts, but of course, if people have questions or your own comments, feel free to raise your hand and (coughs) include that. In the mix tonight to talk about the very real benefits like why does the Buddha make this a big deal I don't know if all of you hopefully some of you have read chapter 3 and in that chapter there's a discourse that Venerable Annalio is quoting from it's a pretty well-known passage where the Buddha says uh, That as good as it is to be generous to somebody, like to give somebody food that needs food, and even more than that, to give food to somebody with some deep insight, or a hundred people, a hundred nuns with deep insight, or even the Buddha himself, the Buddha and all the nuns and all the monks, so just like creating the epitome of a generous act. As good as that is, As good as it is to take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, as good as it is to lead an ethical life, to be really deeply committed to non-harming and to uh, cultivate that in a really deep way, just to have the heart, the mind, established in loving-kindness for as long as it takes to milk a cow is much better than all of that. In the same way, that the light of a full moon outshines all the other stars. Metta, the mind established in loving kindness for the duration, whatever that would be. Some of you maybe have grown up in farms. How long does it take to milk a coal? Maybe what, like three or four? M- Doug, you know. Five minutes. About five minutes? <laughs> 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 yeah, so that seems doable. <laughs> Then we can dispense with ethical conduct and... Well, if you've read the chapters, you know you can't because you can't actually sustain loving-kindness and be involved in, you know, generally speaking, negative activity. It doesn't work that way, right? It will interrupt. So, to do that means we've really already cleaned up our act in so many ways. And of course, There's even something better than that, but it's number two, right? The best thing is to sort of realize the mind free of the defilements, you know, the mind not uh, contained by any self-centered activity. So full awakening. But short of full awakening, sustaining love for the duration it takes to milk a cow, the Buddha has as number two So, and I mean, both we should be inspired by that, but also I think uh, appropriately in awe of how that's a high bar to have a mind, have that purity of friendliness, compassion, to really hold that. So we'll notice, like I'm assuming in the guided meditation, even if you were feeling some Lightness, some expansive, feeling some warm qualities. The rock-hard, twisted steel of our heart starts to get a little softer and just a general glow of, yeah, maybe it's okay to love, to care, to wish well. But probably there's a little dance, right, where there's a little opening And then, oh, well, maybe, you know, what about this pain in my hip? You know, or what about the bleakness of, you know, whatever story that might be bouncing around about how bad it is? Right? There there are always going to be thoughts, feelings, sensations, objects of experience that are going to arise that will be challenges, apparently, appear to be a challenge to the undefended, opening quality of love, the inclusive quality of love. You know how that is, like, you know, the the sort of classic example is you're just having a great time with your best buddies, you know, and then somebody shows up who doesn't belong in that group but clearly wants to be part of the group, right? And it's like, it could have been such a nice expanded state where everyone feels safe and everybody cares and everybody's being friendly. And then all of a sudden, oh, you ruined it. You know, we got to let this person in. You know, oh, it's ruined. Or we're in that expanded state and then we remember something Like some other aspect of our life that we had conveniently forgotten about. And then it comes back. It just sort of rushes back in. Look at me. What about me? What about this thing? You know, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe some old shame pattern. So it's really interesting to that dance, the kind of the pushback that can happen when we're cultivating that. And that's, you know, the last few weeks we talked about this. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a real emphasis on sila, ethical conduct, because it's often the lack of harmony in our relationships, the unfinished business from the past or present, that as we're, on purpose cultivating and supporting the expanse, the the expansion of feelings, the attitude of love, that places that are, you know, these places of unfinished business, these not so harmonious relationships, they tend to come to mind. Because they can't both be alive in the same mind at the same time. So as we cultivate that experience of unconditional love and expanded, all-inclusive, unconditional love, wishing well, caring about, appreciating in all directions, then, we, then we'll, you know, in the ongoing process of cultivating that attitude, that expanded attitude, we'll have to do a lot of work, a lot of therapeutic work with or without a therapist uh, just in our practice because the unfinished business will rear its head. So I thought it would be good to outline tonight some of the areas you know the benefits both as a partly as an inspiration for us but also Yeah, just so we can start to recognize the effect the practice is having, really start being attuned to it. Like everything, if we're not inspired, we won't put in the effort that's needed for change. I mean, more than anything, the definition of a human being is inertia, right? We have the inertia of habit energy, and we need to respect the power, like the mind will want to do things in the way that it's done things in the past. And it's just deeply entrenched. These neural patterns, you know, they have their grooves on you know all levels, the way we think about things, the way we feel about things. These patterns have been cut in, you know, Or wired in. And so that's hard to go beyond. And this is true on all, you know, changing any habits, but especially these deeper sort of emotional, psychological patterns. So we want to be able to feel the fruit of the practice, recognize it so it can, yeah, so it can release some energy or be inspired. So this is the traditional. Text where the Buddha names the benefits of loving kindness practice. Practitioners, when the liberation of mind through loving kindness is practiced, right? Because remember, this is a temporary liberation. When we're in an expanded state, I mean, maybe not a perfectly expanded state of loving kindness, but in that direction. You, you'll you know you're doing the practice. You know you're moving in the right direction precisely because the mind feels more and more liberated of what it would otherwise feel weighed down by or imprisoned by or contained by. It's exactly that feeling of going beyond boundaries, beyond our normal attitude, our restrictions of our normal attitudes like how fear tends to define how we feel and how we are in the moment and going beyond that those limitations its liberation from those limitations that is the whole practice so practitioners when the liberation of mind through loving kindness is practice and we should even say that to ourselves oh yeah I'm gonna sit down I'm going to practice the liberation of the mind through loving-kindness, through the means of loving-kindness, through the means of compassion. I'm going to liberate, temporarily at least, liberate the mind from what I'm not even that aware is constraining the mind, limiting the mind right now. I'm so distracted by distractions, I don't even realize how contained, limited, narrow, this existence is and maybe you've even got a taste of that in the guided meditation you know like it's always a good sign when there's a moment where the mind is sort of surprised by how much love there is. Oh, this heart, this mind is capable of this much generosity of the heart this much love, kindness, joy, compassion, this much beauty Wow! And and part of that is like, how how could I have been missing this? Or, why don't I do this more often? Because it's also, it feels good. When the liberation of the mind through loving-kindness is practiced, developed, resorted to, used as one's vehicle, made one's foundation steadied, consolidated, and perfected, 11 benefits can be expected. Which 11? One sleeps happily. I'm sure most of you have heard this before. One sleeps happily. One wakes happily. One has no bad dreams. One is loved by others. Right? It's easy to love somebody who's loving. It's, it's just is. In the same way that we tend to be irritated by people who aren't loving, you know, or afraid of them, or don't want to be around them for whatever reason we concoct. One is loved by non humans. One is guarded by the angels, the celestial beings. Fire, poison, and sword or sword won't touch one. <laughs> One's mind becomes concentrated quickly. One's complexion becomes clear. <laughs> one dies with a mind free from confusion. If no higher attainment is reached, one is reborn in the Brahma realms. So Brahma realms are just a, a really exalted realm of existence, like a beyond even the normal angels. So... You don't need to believe any of that. But I think it's good to just have an open mind about this. You know, like in the Buddhist cosmology, people who are really good at resting, abiding in these states of love, unconditioned love, but aren't fully awake, then they get reborn in these pure states. You don't even have like an energy body like an angel would. You know, these are just... uh, cosmological ideas, and maybe they represent some reality. Who knows? You don't even have a body. You're just like in this realm of pure love. You're basically, like when you get into a really expanded state of love, you're not that aware of your body. And certainly in the deeper states, you're not aware of your body at all. The only thing the mind is knowing, that's why it's a concentration object, it knows only the attitude, the quality of love. And so that attitude has no weight, no shape. And it's because the mind is only paying attention to that, so it's not paying attention to anything else, like its idea of the body or the actual experience of sensation. It's not paying attention. So those realms would be just like that, disembodied love. And they evidently they last those existences last for a long time, inconceivable length of time, like more than the expansion and contraction of the universe, you know, according to Buddhist cosmology. because, and you'll see this too, just in your own practice, it's a really stable place, right, in the same way when we're a grump and irritated and and it's like with that attitude we see what is worthy of being grumpy about, worthy of being irritated about. And so it feeds back into the grumpiness. So like in most patterns, there's a feedback mechanism that sort of keeps that attitude in place. But with the quality of love, these expanded states of love and compassion, joy, and equanimity, the feedback mechanism is much more complete or has a lot more integrity so the stability there is really good and that's why it's a very that's why the buddha praised these practices and why it's used for concentration practice like some of you have heard of jhana practice so these getting into these absorbed states Where the mind retreats from ordinary sense experience for a while and gets a powerful vacation from its ordinary experience of being impinged upon by sights and sounds and sensations and thoughts the mind really retreats and one of the primary vehicles for getting into those very refined states of absorption is reflecting on love drawing a of paying attention to the attitude of love, to the exclusion of everything else. Because there's a, a natural stability, because it's pleasant, right, the mind really organizes itself, the attention rather, organizes itself around the pleasantness of that expanded state. And so keep that in mind, like when you do your sits, you know as we continue and you maybe hopefully will continue even after this course every week to be doing some of this loving-kindness practice maybe one day a week or do a little at the beginning of every sit or whatever makes sense but for now I would continue to make it the main way you practice use your formal sitting time but to really Uh, tune into the pleasantness. I mean, that's really what you're looking for, whether you start, like I've been guiding us with the body, the mind's relationship to the body, and finding a loving, a way the mind can relate to the body in a loving way, a kind way, a compassionate way, an appreciative way, and then build from that. Or you start with a particular person, or your dog, or your cat, Right? You bring some relationship to mind, which is just really, you're just bringing memory to mind, that's all you're doing, or some visual image, and then that reminds you that you care about that person or you appreciate that person, and then you can start paying attention to the attitude, because the image or your relationship to your own bodily experience is sort of your gateway to recalling and tuning into the attitude of love. And then can you hold that in mind? And the way you hold it in mind is you notice it feels good. It's a very pure kind of pleasantness. Like eating ice cream is one kind of pleasantness. You know, lying down at the end of a busy day is another kind of pleasantness. But feeling the attitude of love is a much more refined pleasantness. right? Because it's the pleasantness of non-aversion. It's what the mind feels like when there's no aversion and fear right so that's a more refined pleasantness than having a sweet smooth cold taste in your mouth or you know a nice hug from a friend or lying down or you know whatever we n- might normally gravitate toward for a pleasant experience it sort of stands out but it's refined it's it's like if we have just gross, gross taste buds, and someone gives us a really refined food, you know, it's wasted on us. Or someone gives me, you know, I don't drink alcohol or wine, um, and so if someone asks me to taste a really expensive wine, I'm probably it's not going to be meaningful to me, even if it costs two hundred dollars a bottle or something like that. So it's, a, and it's similarly with these attitudes, because we're looking for pleasantness in a more gross way, initially we haven't cultivated a taste for the lightness, the pleasantness of that expansion, the, the absence of ill will, like how nice the absence of ill will is to experience. But we can cultivate a sensitivity to that. That's sort of what we're doing. And it's that, like developing a taste for that refined pleasantness of a mind without ill will. Temporarily, you know, temporarily no ill will in the mind. Well, what is that like? What does that heart or mind feel like? That feels really good. Yeah, John. So um, you
0: talk about the attitude of love, and a lot of times in regular, everyday
1: language, you talk about feeling. Well. And so I'm guessing the attitude of love, remember, Yeah, because it's that there is a feeling, like lately, in the last few seconds, I was talking about the feeling tone, the being pleasant, right? But the object is the attitude of love itself but the f- the feeling is right there you can't i mean you can sort of bring the feeling into view but and which is basically the trick i'm saying is useful notice that the attitude of love is pleasant notice the refined pleasantness of that mind that is relatively, or maybe in moments, completely free of ill-well. Notice that, and appreciate it. It's, It's like we have to gather, like the way we build the quality of love is we have to put everything else down. And the way we put everything else down is we have to get interested in it, like hold it in mind and keep... Getting more and more interested in it, so more and more gets dropped, until there's only love remaining. So, in a way, you know, we talk like in um, in some of the texts about sending it out, like radiating it out all directions—north, south, east, west, northwest, southeast—you know, all above, below, everywhere, in every way, right? Like we chanted at the beginning of the evening, but it's. What it is more is that everything else is being abandoned until there's only love that remains. The attention is only knowing love. So the subjective experience of that is love is everywhere. There is nothing that is not touched, affected by love. Because all the mind, the attention, is opening to, paying attention to, is the love. So that's that universal expansion, and then that's where that feedback loop kicks in, because that unification with love is very powerful, it's very pleasant, and the mind gets locked in, right? And that's why it's a gateway to the jhanas, to absorption. Because then to the degree the mind can just yield or surrender to that pattern, that feedback loop, then the mind temporarily lets go of everything else. The whole world basically disappears and there's only that experience of love left or that experience of absorption left. So... The, the reason attitude is important is that it, it is a construction of the mind. It's a very wholesome and beautiful construction of the mind. Right? But it is, a, it is a, something of the mind that we're paying attention to. And even the feeling, even though we might viscerally feel the pleasantness, that it's pleasant, that it's known to be pleasant, is also of the mind not even though the body may be affected initially, you know, feel that sense of lightness is sort of a visceral experience. And um, I mentioned uh, earlier how, you know, to do this practice, any of our unfinished business will come up. And some people... Uh, from Yale and uh, Michigan State, some researchers did some experience where they divided people up into groups uh, one group one third you know of the they divided groups up randomly got a six week loving kindness training where they did practice. the other did six weeks of loving kindness discussions <laughs> <laughs> I always love that because. Talking about it doesn't help. <laughs> That's this, this is what this research. And then they had a, a group that didn't do anything. Um, and they all took the implicit association test before and after the six weeks, which I'm assuming is that same thing that many of us have done online that I think was originally developed at Harvard um, or something similar to that. And they did it around um, these implicit bias tests were around uh, African-American and around uh, homeless people. And if you haven't done this, I highly recommend, I think it's something like implicit bias at Harvard EDU or something like that. But if you just Google implicit bias, bias test and maybe put Harvard in, you'll get the website. And you can do this. And it's just a 10, maybe a little bit more minutes, and you're just seeing uh, photographs. And you have to sort of a sign of value, positive or negative value, based on I forget exactly how it works, but it's a very clever cleverly designed thing that just reveals to us and the researchers these implicit biases that we all have just growing up in culture around the color of people's skin, around many other sort of categories of identity that we just have biases built-in biases around everybody does even people from these groups also being raised and part of the culture end up with these biases and we don't it's not about hating ourselves it's about knowing that seeing them so we can keep them in view like instead of them operating in an unconscious way but the point of this is that they found the one group that actually practiced loving kindness, that their tests improved. They had less bias afterward than they did before. And I'm guessing that the, uh, the more the heart touches the experience of unconditional love, right? it means the mind isn't operating in that more primal, fear-based way. Where bias, right? See, biases are really in the service of fear. Like, what should I be afraid of? I'm afraid of people who look different than me, or I'm afraid of people I think don't have money because they might want my money, you know, or whatever it might be. So the whole experience, the subjective experience of touching unconditional love in a more regular way is. I'm not afraid, because I have this other alternative. I can care, I can love, I can appreciate. So it's a liberation from fear. So the the programming, of course, the cultural programming hasn't changed. They didn't like have a different childhood than they had, didn't watch different TV shows. Those imprints are still in that mind stream, right? But because they're not in the frame of being a fear-based person, then the biases, they don't have the ground to operate because the mind is more, to some degree more, in the place of fearlessness. So I thought that was sort of interesting. I have the, for those who can read academic speak, I have the study, it's the Journal of Experimental Psychology. And uh, when did they do this? Not that long ago. Looks like 2013. So that, I thought, was pretty impressive. And you know how, we know this just in our own anecdotal way. When something has triggered a lot of fear, we operate differently in the world. And when we've had some experiences that have lifted us out of our more fear-based way of being, we're just capable of being such a nice person, even to people we don't like very much. And related research that you can track down coming out of um, Ernst Becker's book, Denial of Death, there's a whole field of, relatively small, but interesting field of psychology. I'm forgetting the name of that field, but they basically study uh, the fear of mortality and how it affects how people operate in different settings. So they do, I think I've mentioned this to some of you, Well, one of their experiments is they'll have people do interviews with other people and then evaluate the person they're interviewing or have to rank people in different ways, judge people in different ways. But for some of the people, like one half of the group that was randomly you know, created, they'll... Flash subliminally some message around death. They'll be just looking at photographs and they'll see a little sign and it will just be the word death. You know, they'll be seeing a bus, a plane, and then a subliminal message death. They won't even know they saw the, the word death. And then the other group just sees the photographs but no subliminal message death. So these people have just been reminded of death. And then they both you know, do the interviews or have to rank people. And these people are meaner and more judgmental. And they even did, like, one was, like, you have to give them a punishment. Like, somebody didn't do something, so what What sort of would be an appropriate punishment? And they were much much more harsh than the people that weren't reminded of mortality or of death. So this is the thing about if we're... <clears throat> If we learn, if we train the mind how to touch and eventually abide for periods of time in an expanded state of unconditional love, unconditional friendliness, compassion, appreciation, equanimity, it protects us from so much of our more mean-spirited animal greed, animal, you know... uh, fight-or-flight programming. It's such a powerful protection to be able to come back to these states of love. You know, and so when we've been traumatized, because sometimes in life, it has nothing to do with the choices we're making. Something just traumatizes us. It could be just a close call in our car with somebody... You know, doing something, or maybe we're the one who did something stupid, but you know, could have been life and death, but we got out of it. But we feel traumatized, right? Well, to take some time and just to have the confidence that we can change the space of the mind. And the Buddha talks about this in that simile of the salt crystal. I'm sure many of you have heard me talk about it or have read it on your own. It's a really important similarly to understand and to keep bringing to mind, where he talks about karma in terms of how karma shows up, right? because certain things are going to just show up in our life because of causes and conditions. Maybe we set it in motion, or maybe it had nothing to do with us, but something set it in motion, and something's going to happen to us because of causes and conditions. And it really matters the quality of the mind that is going to receive that event that karmic event whatever it might be your partner leaves you you lose your job some idiot drives into you and you lose your legs or you know something like that so whatever it is things happen and it really matters the mind that receives that knows what just happened and if we're a small container you know our mind is narrow is tight then when some large action, some provocative, terrible, difficult action happens, it's going to really knock that mind around. But if that mind is as big and empty as space itself, whatever the karmic event is, it will have, you know, theoretically, no effect on that heart, no effect on that mind. In the same way that a salt you know, a big chunk of salt, if you put it in a little body of water, it's really going to affect that body of water. It's going to be salty, you can't drink it, not good for watering plants. But if you put that same bunch of salt in a Lake Superior, it's not going to matter. And this is a beautiful simile for a mind that is more and more often touching into this unconditional love. It has that sort of safety. Things still may happen to us but it doesn't affect us. This is the case with um, not so much with Brahma the loving kindness practice but just being established in wisdom with um, Agulimala which means the garland of fingers. That's what that word, that was his name. This monk who was a mass killer um at the time of the buddha and he needed to kill one more person he had made it's a convoluted story but he had made this deal to kill kill a thousand people in order to be apprenticed by his teacher his guru and uh and anyway he was he needed to kill one more person and then he'd be done and he made the resolve. Oh, I'm going to kill the next person I see. And sure enough, his, it just happened to be his mother. So he was going to kill his mother, and the Buddha sensed what was going on and intervened. And so Gulimala decided to kill the Buddha instead, but he couldn't catch him. And uh, through uh, some skillful words, Gulimala became a student of the Buddha. Right. And so he had a lot of, you know, a lot of karma. A lot of baggage, having been a mass killer for a while, very feared person with his garland of fingers, one finger from each person he had uh, killed. And, uh, and the people, of course, even as he shaved his head and wore the robes of a monk, they knew this was a gulimala. And they were not so happy to feed him and to respect him as a monk. Um, But he could handle it because, you know, he could handle whatever came his way because his mind was expanded, right? So it was like open space. So if there were insults or people threw things at him or whatever he felt, you know, the effects of his negative actions didn't have to interrupt the freedom of the mind, the love in the mind. And this is the quality we and the safety we want to recognize. So make sure that like, if you do a sit, then take some time at the end and reflect on how functional the quality of the mind is, how protected you feel. Like honor and appreciate it. Oh yeah, I could probably do a pretty good job at work with a mind like this you know an attitude like this 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 could be good i mean I often i don't know about you but i often when i'm i get myself get the mind into one of these more expanded places of love one of the first things like when i come out of the sit i have mind. it's like i'm going to go hang out with win because i'm often irritable it's like i want to be around her when i'm not irritable <laughs> Right, <laughs> like, give give her a change of scenery. <laughs> and and basically, what we want to do is share it. We want to like give it away. I'll go hang out with the cat. You know, it's like. We want to rate. It's like it's because the mind realizes it's a beautiful thing, and it just wants to give it away. Like that song. Thank you. Yeah. Hum it first, John. I mean, Bob. All right. This would be hard for me to do, but I'm going to
0: try it. No, I'll sing it. Uh, love is something like a magic penny.
1: Hold it. Are you surprised, Mary? Hold tight, <laughs> and you won't have any. Lend, spend it, and you'll have so many. They'll roll right over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm and then what's the chorus? The, the chorus is the best part, isn't it? it? Love is, if you give it away, give it
0: Lend it and spend it, you'll have some
1: money. But is it, isn't not there a part? Love is
0: something, you give it away. Oh,
1: give, it away. You. Yeah, okay. give it away. Love is. <laughs> yeah. so we work on it. Would you 2 <laughs> We'll give you 15 minutes next week. Yeah. Next week. Or tonight. <laughs> There's a little passage from Sharon's book on loving kindness, she says, she writes, we start by using mindfulness and loving kindness to look directly at the pain we have caused others and the pain we are experiencing ourselves. We look at our shame, our guilt, our fear, and our sadness with understanding and compassion. We see the difference between saying, I am very wrong, and that is all I am, and saying, I did something very wrong, and I feel remorse about it. When we can experience the flow of our feelings with clarity, equanimity, and loving presence, not judgment and narrowness, our minds become a mirror reflecting all that is arising. In the course of that process, the mirror-like mind also reflects back its true nature, natural radiance, purity, and luminosity. As the Buddha said, the mind is shining, shiny, shining, sorry, we can discover the capacity of the mind to be aware, to love, to begin again. Even though we might have acted unskillfully before, we discover, we, discover the clarity, uh, we discover the clarity and peace that are the essence of who we truly are, rather than the greed or anger or fear that motivated us to harm someone. It is not as if we have to do something to deserve this essence. It is simply natural to our being. We may have lived separate from it all our lives, but it has not gone away or dimmed. We may have dishonored it or violated its promise of wholeness, but it remains unchanged and is waiting for us to claim it. And this is the why we feel so safe. It's not that the world has all of a sudden become perfect. Our meanness, the limitations of our personality haven't gone away, or like I said earlier, the... The conditioned nature of our personality hasn't somehow been deconditioned. It's still conditioned. But now there's this other possibility, which is to hold it with wisdom and love instead of to be pushed around by it, to be identified with it. Another thing I wanted to mention about the benefits is to, to really, and I mentioned this in the guided meditation near the end about that circle of giving and receiving. It's like uh, <clears throat> the cause for finding that is to connect. But it matters what we decide to connect with, right? So we're looking for something to be real with to connect in a real way with, that is the fuel for love, is the support for love. Because you know how the Buddha talks about, some of you have been coming to the weekly practice groups, and I've been giving a series of talks on the five aggregates, and the Buddha calls them, he coined this term, this is not in existence before, the word aggregate was around, it was a common word evidently at the time of the Buddha, just meaning like a heap of something, a bunch of stuff, an aggregate. But he put together uh, um, the clinging aggregates, or the aggregates of clinging. And the idea was that the experience of the body and mind are the fuel for grasping, for struggling, for suffering. So what's the fuel for love? What, what is the, the mind? Need to connect with for there to be support for love. And that's that circle of giving and receiving. Like, what does the heart need to show up, need to receive the awareness? What does it need to receive? Because it matters what we pay attention to. And that's why this is different than just a general awareness practice that we do, because we're learning an awareness practice to let whatever's predominant be the object that is known, right? Okay, pain in the knee, welcome. But now we're interested in uh, paying attention like connecting with this generous quality, right? So this is why we have this term, dana, the giving and receiving. And one of the ways that you can tune into this is it has a feeling of movement as opposed to something that's fixed or set or hard. Right? It starts to feel alive and some of you know when I, we talk about rapture or joy in terms of meditation practice I often will operationalize that term as feeling that something's moving. Right? that that's what joy is. It's like the conditioned mind, the conceptualizing mind, it tends to create the appearance of things being static or fixed. And on a sort of egoic level, we might feel safe because things feel set or fixed, but it also feels dead because things are set or fixed. So as we develop the quality of mindfulness, which is a more honest uh, awareness that's not interpreting, but is just seeing things as they are, the mind, the awareness begins to notice everything's in motion. And we call that stage or that place the place where rapture arises, joy arises. And it's not like joy is something. Joy is just the mind recognizing that everything's in motion and that feels good because mm-hmm. it's the the false sense of things being fixed begins to fall away. <coughs> and Everything begins to feel alive and in motion. And so that's another, like I mentioned, the pleasantness, but another, another quality that you can use to um, tune in and hold, keep in mind the quality of love, metta, is this not it not being fixed, not being static. It feels like a living, moving dynamic in the heart. And it involves like a moment-by-moment a moment willingness to connect, to receive, to be exposed. Right? That's the cause. Like when I open, then the heart can meet, can relate with this attitude of love. That if I'm not willing to connect, then there's not going to be love, right? So it's like that willingness to show up, whether you're bringing an individual to mind or whether you're relating to the body initially or even you're further along in your set and you're, you've got a lot of pleasantness in the lightness, your willingness to be real with the pleasantness, to be intimate with that. So, whatever, wherever you are in the sit, you're just beginning and you're just in an ordinary state of mind, frame of mind, you know, and the body hurts and you're gonna, uh, not that into it, right? So, there's no love without connecting with that. Because love, all of the different flavors of love, have a cause. And the cause is connecting, including, being real. Not being distant, not being afraid, right? Being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to be open. Not in a theoretical, not open to what I want to be open to, but open to what's here. So one of the things we can ask, like when we're getting started in a sit and we're decided that we're going to do uh, loving-kindness practice, is to ask, like, well, what can I, what is my heart, my mind willing to be real with, willing to be, to connect, to open to. What's here that I can appreciate? What's here that I can care about? What's here that I can be intimate with? You know, and it might be your body. It might be the idea of your cat sitting at home, right? Because even an idea is something that the mind can connect with. So it doesn't have to be sensation. That's why we can use a person, or we can use all beings. We can use our friends at Common Ground. We can use our enemy. Maybe I'll leave it here in case there's some comments. I, of course, I always have more to say, but any thoughts about benefits of practice that you've seen I thought this could be one of the main topics for the small groups next week. And in case you're one of those people, just remember that part of being in the Buddhist studies is that you stay for the small groups. So um, please keep that in mind. And so next week, one of the things you might want to bring up in the small groups is like an honest inventory of how you've seen some benefits from the practice, both in the moment of practicing but then also more generally showing up in your day to day life, this, you know, time of paying more attention and doing more formally the practice of loving kindness. But what questions or sharings do, do you have? Yeah, Tim, you want to start us off?
0: Um, I enjoy the the loving kindness practice um and the radiating quality of it, but sometimes I find it makes me like too spaced out and what I do every what I do every day I can't be that I have to be really meticulous in my interactions with other people so can you comment a little bit about how to balance that
1: yeah well p- one thing you might look at um and partly I can say this because I know you practice some from our discussions but is indulging in the pleasantness of it and so and then the, so that's one thing for everybody to be aware of it's like the knowing the pleasantness is a skillful means but it's the attitude we're paying attention to right and just appreciating it and trusting it and then the other thing is take a little time at the end and Take that same feeling you had in a more refined and expanded place, but now bring to mind, imagine going to work or um, you know, doing your studies, and, and, but from within this attitude, this very beautiful, uh, refined quality of love and the kind of care that you could do the study, and uh, the kind of integrity that you could bring because you want to be a really effective healer because you care because you appreciate all the people who wrote these books who are your teachers and you know and all these um, yeah, all the different circles to appreciate, to care, to want to be generous because it's really useful to do that formal integration Otherwise, it can be a little bit of um, I mean, this is true with all meditative states. It can be just a more refined version of, um, you know, a power trip. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Anybody else have comments or questions?
0: Um, one thing I'm noticing is that um, there's a really big relationship in
1: me, anyway, in my experience, between expanded states of love and between uh, going through pain. That um, there, the heart of vulnerability, as far as I've noticed, is kind of the doorway to a more exalted kind of love. Um, and um, being afraid of what's in us or what we see out in the world uh, is pretty limiting um, I think That as far as I've experienced it. Mm. Thanks, Han. Yeah, Bob. I have been... Um, it, it, Here, wait for the mic because we're recording. <laughs>
0: sure. <laughs> hmm. Um,
1: <laughs> I have
0: been um, thinking a lot about the prodigal son story in the Bible during this session In in the That story is about the, so prodigal son runs away and spent, two brothers, prodigal son runs away, spends all of his inheritance, comes back, dad forgives him. Um, Older brother um, is sort of angry with him. Um, And and older brother sticks around and works hard. And and I've always been kind of the good boy model. Um, And the prodigal son story has always bothered me because it doesn't seem fair. Um... (laughs) and and the the meaning in that is just extraordinary to me, and the you know the inability to in the older brother to forgive and feel compassion is um, there many, many, many layers in that for me. and then just very quick story there's a there's a there's um, St John's University, this school that I went to uh, up in College of Minnesota. Um, created a Bible, uh, an illuminated Bible, about I don't know ten years ago. It's really quite beautiful.
1: Yeah. In the about
0: it. the picture um, for the Prodigal Son story, when it was being designed, um, the artist um, sent a mock-up draft to the religious group. and In the mock-up draft, this happened shortly after nine eleven. Had a faint image of the twin towers in the background. Um, and the, the group said, take that out. This Bible will be around for another 1,000 years. We're not quite sure what you're up to there, but but why don't you take that out? Guy comes back to this group and says, well, I might not be as religious as you guys, but isn't this story about forgiveness? And, and if we don't find our way to some level of forgiveness around what happened here, won't we go through more and more pain? So the picture now has a very faint image of the Twin Towers in
1: it. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's a real thing, like, are we here to love unconditionally, or are we here to get a good deal? Because <laughs> it seems like we're here to get a good deal. Most of the time, that's what we're operating. And this is the sort of what we're looking at in terms of, are we a spiritual being? So what we're looking for in life is the release from ill-will, or are we an ordinary being, and what we're looking for is a good deal, a fair shake. And it doesn't mean there shouldn't be a fair shake or a good deal, but the world is probably never going to deliver good deals for everybody. You know, certainly hasn't in the past. But it's 9 o'clock, so we need to leave it here. Just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Appreciate being in community.